Hello, and welcome to the Engineering Your Farm podcast. This podcast is produced by the Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Field Agricultural Engineering Team. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Engineering Your Farm podcast today. I'm Brian Doherty, Field Agricultural Engineer with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. And we're going to get techie again in this episode, and we're going to be discussing robotics and row crop agriculture. I'm looking forward to the discussion with our guest today, where we're going to talk about a robotic system for improving nutrient management called the robot. Our guest today is Kent Cavender Bears. Kent is the co-founder and CEO of Robot Systems. So Kent, thanks for being here today. Delighted to be with you. So I'm looking forward to our discussion, but before we get into what the robot is and how it works, can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you came up with this idea? Sure thing. Uh, my background is going to reveal that uh, I've been at things for a while. So I uh, started my undergrad uh, several decades ago in ag engineering, of all things, um, and was quite uh, enamored with the idea of working on the design of farm equipment. But at that time, thinking large farm equipment uh, and then got pulled into environmental engineering uh, towards the end of my undergrad and went on, did a master's and PhD in that, uh, became more of an environmental scientist or kept a strong interest in agriculture, um, but was more focused on water quality, land use issues, uh, did a about a decade after my PhD in uh, trying to bring better information to the public around environmental topics um, in a couple of different nonprofit efforts where I basically filled the role as a science advisor. Uh, And then in early, I guess, 2012 was at a transition point trying to figure out what was next and had long wanted to work with uh, one of my brothers who's a large-scale dairy farmer in Western New York State. And so we put together uh, a plan that we wanted to tackle what we felt is one of the biggest issues in large-scale agriculture, and that is the the inefficient use of nitrogen. So you can sort of put it in a pejorative way, which is the uh, you know wasting nitrogen and creating environmental problems. Or you can think about it as, hey, this is a great win-win opportunity because every every pound of nitrogen that doesn't end up in a crop is money out of a farmer's pocket. Um, and it's obviously uh, potentially an environmental downside. So we have this, got this opportunity to make farmers more money um, and help them be better stewards at the same time. And that's really what launched us down this path. Um, and as we we really importantly did not set out to bring robotic technology to agriculture. We set out to solve this problem and we sort of backed into a robotic solution because um, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about the the stresses on farmers, the risks and risk management around in-season nitrogen application. Um, And the reason a lot of farmers opt out is that it's a a stressful uh, undertaking because you got to make sure you get on before the crop gets too tall. Uh, for most growers that don't have access to a high clearance machine um, or don't want to use it for that. And so we came up with this idea of, well, what happens if we go through between the rows? Seems seemed kind of nutty to start with. Uh, but as we kept moving on it, it seemed uh, like there might be something to it. And that's when we engage our other brother, who happens to be one of the world's foremost robotics experts. And uh, there the idea was launched. 
Yeah, sounds like you got a, a great team for this. So can you just kind of give us a, just a basic explanation of what exactly the robot is and how it works? Sure thing. So we are 100% focused on corn, though things that I say will eventually apply to other crops. But um, we are <clears throat> we're focused on corn because we're essentially focused on the impact of nitrogen, and that's the right place to start. And so the design of the machine is such that it can travel between two rows of the crop. We've started with 30-inch corn, so corn that's spaced on 30 inches. Uh, eventually, we can scale the operation of the machine to, to narrower row width, where incidentally, the challenge of managing nitrogen is even greater um, because we're trying to produce more per acre, uh, which requires more nitrogen and more management of nitrogen. So specific to the, the current machine uh, needs to navigate between two rows. So we need to see the crop. We can't just use GPS. Uh, we like to have GPS and we'd love to have a as-planted map, but that information alone is not sufficient to operate at three to four, maybe even five miles per hour, which is really fast for a small machine traveling between rows. Uh, so we need to visualize uh, in the world of robotics, we call it localized. We need to figure out where the crop is and we need to figure out where the robot is relative to the crop. And if we're getting off center, we need to adjust that, our course so that we stay centered between the rows. The robot is a it's a heavy-duty work platform. It's about 1,500 pounds, the current version, dry, and with another 500 pounds of payload. So it's a pretty substantial machine. We've got very little clearance because we're maximizing width, both for stability as well as payload capabilities. But there it is. It's a self-driving vehicle that drives between two rows of a crop, can see the crop, respond to the crop's location. And it needs to do all the things that you can imagine, like turn at the end of the rows and figure out which row to go into next and, and so on. Yeah, so I've actually seen the machine not in action, but I've seen a, a demo of it. And I, you know, just for the, the listeners, I guess if I had to describe it, I'd describe it as sort of a small skid steer without a cab on it is sort of what this thing looks like. But uh, you can go on the uh, robot website and uh, see some videos and images of, of what this machine actually looks like. So you mentioned carrying capacity. What kind of capacity does the unit have? You know, how many acres per hour could you cover with a single machine? Yep, that is the absolute top question that folks have when they see this, because in evaluating a small machine like this with a, an understanding that getting acres done, covering ground per hour is a critical factor in agriculture. And so we see this little thing, and we're like, how in the world is that going to be relevant? And so it gets right to like, well, how much can you carry and how many acres can you do per hour? And so I'd like to just back up and say, well, let's keep in mind that these little machines, because there's not an operator on them, they really should be able to run 24-7. In reality, it'll probably be 20 hours a day and five days a week or six days a week because there'll still need to be people in the loop. Um, so we may not be able to get complete 24-7 utilization. So it's a little bit different calculus. It now becomes sort of acres per day than acres per hour. And the reason that's relevant is that because we can run longer than a single operator's shift, for example, it's just more relevant to think per day. And so we're going to be in the neighborhood of 50 to 75 acres per day per machine. And so if we start thinking now in terms of 
carrying capacity, as I mentioned, is going to be in that neighborhood of 500 pounds for the current machine. Maybe that goes down. Maybe it goes up. Um, if it goes up, it's probably going to be if we want to put machines on really large fields. Going down might make sense if we want to make the machines cheaper, but that will mean more refill periods during a single operation. And an important thing to keep in mind when you hear 50 to 75 acres per day, uh, need to be thinking, okay, how does that align to the amount of capital per machine? And I would say in rough numbers, if we're thinking about putting this head to head with a big high clearance sprayer, which I'm not sure is the right comparison, but everyone goes there, so we might as well. Uh, we're probably talking a tenth of the amount of capital per one of these machines when we get to any kind of scale, maybe even less. So if we can do 50 to uh, 75 acres per machine, and then we can, for the same amount of capital, probably be doing 500 to 750 acres per day. And keep in mind, this is not the sort of high-speed, really wide application of herbicide that we're comparing it to. It's more a little bit slower, a little bit narrower boom width, and you know, especially if drop tubes are used when applying nitrogen with a high boy, as really you need. Yeah. So with this unit, I assume you're primarily applying like liquid 28 or 32 percent. Is that mainly what you've been doing so far? That's correct. And we definitely have interest in both getting that fertilizer into the ground for an early season application, as well as uh, experimenting with urea uh, would be, I think, interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of craziness with pricing right now. We definitely don't want to get anywhere near anhydrous just from a safety standpoint. But uh, yeah, generally, we've been using 28 or 32% uh, UAN. And you've also been uh, doing some cover crop seeding with the unit. Can you just kind of walk us through that a little bit? You know, acres per day there, what kind of seed mixes you've been doing, how how that's been working so far? Yeah, so so our big sort of pre-commercial or early commercial demonstration, uh, we did 100 acres across several fields of fully autonomous cover crop seeding with our uh, latest prototype. When I talk about 50 to 75 acres per day, that's not today. That's where we know we will be able to get when we are able to improve various efficiencies and, and such and minimize the amount of time between human touch, which is a really critical metric to be tracking. But the cover crop seeding is pretty straightforward. A current machine has two different hoppers on, one in the back, one in the front. The front one is interesting because it's dropping seed right in front of the tracks. So today, that seems to produce a little bit better outcome um, because we're getting a bit of soil seed contact. Over time, we, we intend to put some profile on the tracks, uh, do something that, that uh, enables us to get a bit more soil seed contact. Um, and then in the back, we're blowing seed out either side so that we're, we're seeding in the neighboring lanes, if you will. Uh, between the the neighboring two rows on either side of the machine. Uh, So we get in 30-inch corn, seven and a half feet per pass seeded. Um, And the the neat thing is that uh, a lot of growers are interested in mixes. Um, And so if you're doing a mix, you're really concerned about the field level outcome rather than a particular row. And so we might do a more sensitive seed in the lane in which the robot's going if we need to get some better soil seed contact. Uh, and then maybe we blow out a rye or some other seed that uh, germinates more easily uh, just with just broadcasting on the soil surface. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about using different species in different rows, but potential there maybe for some biostrip tillage type applications or something like that as well. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned tracks. So your original robot design had wheels on it. So why did you decide to switch over and go with track design versus wheels? Well, we love the wheel design and the articulated steering for the end of row operation. It was made really nice, tight turns at the end of the row. And we still had at least half, if not less, of ground pressure than a fully loaded best of class high boy. Uh, So we were in a good situation there. There was the unexpected outcome that, um, well, let me back up just a sec. The reason it works out pretty well to spray nitrogen at the base of the plants is that even if there isn't rain, we tend to see dew accumulate on the leaves and it trickles down and it ends up making sort of a moist uh, swath right at the base of the plant. So sort of a couple inches either, either side of the plant, you tend to have a bit of a moisture band. And so if we can spray nitrogen in that band, then we tend to see it get soaked up in the soil and you have to be less worried about losses from volatilization or other loss processes. No surprise, that's uh, for those familiar with Y-drops, that's where they're placing the nitrogen as well. So the problem for a wheeled machine is that we want it to stay centered between rows, but occasionally it's going to get off course a little bit. Any of these robots will and a wheeled machine gets over and it basically creates a problem for itself because it gets in that softer soil. And because of our relatively gentle course correction that we can do with that articulated steering design, uh, we just we tended to get stuck in a rut, uh, a rut that we created basically by getting pulled over towards the plant into that softer soil. And then we tended not to be able to get out of that. Uh, and then there was just a lot of rubbing up against the plants, which is not good. So that was one of the reasons to move to a track design. We also had, certainly I had some, uh, oh my gosh, moments when seeing the the wheeled machine look like it was going to tip. And that obviously is an outcome we don't want. Um, So we were looking for something more stable, uh, ability to take at least as much, maybe some more payload, try to have lower ground pressure, uh, and be able to to have more maneuverability between rows so that we could chart a path and stay on a path that was well-centered between rows. And that's uh, that's how we ended up on the track design. Yeah, I like your phrasing there. There, there are no failures in agriculture. We just have unexpected outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've had a couple of those along our course for sure. Yeah, so we kind of got into this a little bit, but what do you see as some of the advantages and disadvantages of this robot system versus using like a high boy applicator or maybe seed and cover crops with a drone, the other type of application equipment that's on the market? Um, So I'll take the last one first. If we go put our seeding solution head to head with a drone seeding system, the advantages of the drone is you don't really have to care about the row mapping at all. You're just flying over top. And just like with an airplane, you kind of need to know the, the boundaries of the field and then uh, you're good. Um, the challenge with the drone is the main uh, value proposition, I guess, that we have is that we're down close to the soil. Um, we can get a nice broadcast right on the soil surface. Uh, I think over time, as we talked about, we'll be able to do some innovation around soil seed contact in promoting that. 
Um, and so the, the drone obviously can't deal with that. And you have the same issues with an airplane application that you're concerned about getting seed caught in the leaves. And so that's obviously a, not a great outcome. Um, and then the, the other big thing is payload. With a drone, maybe you can carry enough to do an acre, if that, you know, depending on seeding rate and whatnot. But we, we have the ability to take a lot more payload. And so I think that's a real advantage over ground-based machine. If we think about head-to-head uh, -head comparison with a high boy uh, for nitrogen, obviously they can cover more ground per machine. Uh, we sort of talked through the idea that the head-to-head -head should not be one robot versus one big machine, but a, a fleet of small machines. And then it just comes down to the cost per acre. I think we can be cost competitive, if not come in substantially below the cost of operating a, a high boy per acre. And then we cut out the concern about compaction, which uh, friends who formerly worked at one of the big OEMs and describe um, a high boy as essentially uh, the tires acting like a pizza wheel, cutting a nice groove in your field, which leads to a lot of compaction and concerns about that. Now, obviously, a nice dry field, that's not going to happen as much. But compaction is a big deal. And, and then there, you know, there are folks who um, are just concerned about having a high boy in the field when the crop is getting close to tasseling, just concerned about uh, applicator blight, as, as it's affectionately known, you know, that just run over a bunch of the crop, which nobody likes. Um, and that's a judgment call on some farmers simply don't want to use it. Some are totally comfortable taking that risk. And if we think about using the high boy later in the season, certainly there are folks successfully seeding acreage with that. I think uh, the drop tubes do present a challenge. That's the, the effort to bring the seed down close to the soil surface. Now you've got uh, all these tubes that are essentially dragging against the leaves and potentially could be uh, knocking the ears, uh, but also are sort of from what I understand. And I'm don't want to pretend to be an expert on it, but I, I do think the, the drop tubes tend to ride up pretty high if you're going to travel at any speed. Um, so that kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. So I, I think there's a number of reasons why a, a fleet of small ground machines have advantages. Um, I think if, you know, if we go back to the drone, if you're going to see little test plots, boy, that's, that's a really, could be a really slick way to do it. Uh, if you're going to do a bunch of 40-acre fields, it might be challenging. And if you're trying to get nitrogen on and you're really stressed, uh, concerned about the, how tall the crop's getting, and maybe you've had a bit more moisture, and so you're concerned about compaction, then, then the robot uh, fleet of small machines is, a, is a, I think, an intriguing option. Right now, you're just powering this unit with a small engine. Have you looked at fuel efficiency comparisons with other types of equipment and kind of a follow-up on that? Have you given any thought to possibly making the unit electric at some point? Sure. Let me just flag so that we can come back to it to talk, to talk about data um, as it relates to, to nitrogen, because I think that's another compelling piece of the story. But um, so... Yeah, the, the current machine, both version one and what we call now our version three prototype, uh, operate with a 13-horse Kubota diesel um, driving a hydraulic pump. So it's a diesel hydraulic drivetrain. And that's worked quite well. Um, we have thought a lot about going electric. Uh, we've gotten pressure from 
pretty well-placed investors that think that we would be more investable if we were an electric platform. Uh, I think that there's a good opportunity for this to be an electric machine, but I'll tell you the challenges. Number one is field side charging is going to still be fossil fuel based for a long time. Um, and since we are reasonably large, high payload machine, we're going to need a lot of batteries and or frequent recharging. So there's a challenge there. Um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the grid before we can consider charging. These are not going to be machines that we can sort of charge at night in a garage like we can think about with electric cars at the moment. Uh, these are going to need multiple recharges during the day to get some serious work done. So the compromise position, um, one that's a bit of a win-win, is to think about a diesel-electric hybrid and maybe even operating that diesel off of biodiesel at some point. I'm not sure. But diesel-electric hybrid would get us on that path towards an all-electric platform because the drivetrain would now be uh, electric motors. Uh, we believe that that would allow us to control the vehicle better. Um, hydraulic is a bit of a challenge from an autonomy standpoint. Uh, there's just you know slow reaction time or relatively slow uh, that makes in-row course correction a challenge. So there'd be advantages to switching over to an electric drivetrain uh, with probably we could get away with a smaller diesel engine uh, and a bit larger, well, it'd certainly be a larger battery than we have today. Um, we wouldn't have to go all the way to the size required for an all EV platform. But the nice thing is that with a diesel electric hybrid, you don't have to have the diesel engine size to the worst scenario. So going up a reasonably you know, soft uh, soil incline where the machine just needs more horsepower. And with a diesel electric, you can just rely on the battery a bit more in those situations. And Sure, maybe you have to pause at some point to get some recharge, but it's probably a win long-term with a smaller engine. Glad you brought up the nitrogen use efficiency. That is something I wanted to touch on. So what are you seeing in your data? Are you envisioning you know, multiple small applications during the season to improve efficiency, or how are you handling that? So this is, this is a topic that you'll see I, I have a lot of passion around uh, because I've learned a ton over the last uh, number of years working on this. And where my mind is at the moment is that it's probably two in-season applications. You'll find some growers are doing that already. The challenge for an in-season application is to know what size should that application be? I mean, it's the same challenge if you're putting it all on at planting. Um, and so using a model is really the, the best solution for that. We are big proponents of ADAPTN. There are certainly um, university extension estimators uh, available that say, you know, based on the last 10 years, this is a good application rate for the yield that you're aiming for, uh, given current commodity prices and input prices. Um, the challenge with that is that not every year is going to be the average. And so, understanding how current weather has impacted nitrogen dy dynamics on the field is really critical. And so, we believe that an early, say, around V6 application should be paired with a later, maybe V16, V18, probably right 
pre-tassel application, and both of those should be guided by a model where we're putting on um, a portion of the required amount at V6, and then coming back and putting the remainder on at uh, that later stage. And a piece of the puzzle that we're very excited about and have just launched a new project on is actually doing experimentation on every field, every season. So using our small format machine, we can create uh, mini test plots across the field and apply a low, medium, high amount of nitrogen during that early V6 application, and then come back um, at the time that we're going to do that later application and start by analyzing those small plots, understanding, hey, did we create we deliberately tried to create a high degree of nitrogen stress on this little plot. Um, did we see it? And we would see it through leaf yellowness down low, which uh, our robots will be well positioned to see. Um, so we're developing a machine vision, machine learning system to be able to automatically detect and categorize that leaf yellowness. And then we'll, we'll understand um, the next step will be to compare that to the amount of yellowness that's predicted by the model. Uh, which we've sort of figured out a way to get the model to tell us how much yellowness there should be. And if those things don't line up, then we know that there are some parameters of the model that need adjusting to, to really get it to sing beautifully for the, the, per, the current field, you know, to get it tuned in so that it gives us a recommendation that we can really trust for that field. And Getting back to your question about nitrogen use efficiency, uh, there's no reason we shouldn't be able to reduce the amount of nitrogen 30% or more uh, for a farmer. And, and we believe that uh, there, there's ample evidence out there that a good in-season nitrogen program can increase a farmer profitability by 20, 30 or more dollars per acre. All those estimates are always based on a particular corn price and a particular nitrogen price. So those numbers are a bit dated, but generally we're seeing those prices track each other. So that's unfortunate, I think, for somebody trying to market corn, but it is, uh, it is a reality. Yeah, that's really interesting. You might be able to do some actual data collection in the field while you're applying to improve your future applications. Yeah, we're really, uh, we've been convinced over the last uh, number of years that combining work with data is essential for justifying the cost of a ground robot in the field. So figure out how to collect data that makes the work better and also collect other data layers. Someone can imagine that we should very easily be able to generate a in-the-row spacing map uh, as feedback to a producer's precision planting system. You know, the other side of that coin is that justifying the cost of a data-only robot is pretty tough. Uh, I think that it certainly works better uh, in a really high value, like a breeding plot situation. But thinking about how to justify the cost in production ag means that you've got to have either an exceptionally cheap platform and operating costs, or you need to have reasonably valuable data layers. And both of those are challenging prospects. What are the bugs or engineering obstacles you still have to iron out to be able to scale this up? Oh, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So I want to be careful in saying that we, we've done a, a bunch of really valuable work to date, uh, demonstrated the concept, demonstrated that we're in a good position to scale. But I don't want to mislead and say that, in fact, we are done. Uh, there's there's just a, a bunch of things that w 
that need to be done. And they, the right way to think about it is that the operations will improve iteratively over time. And so some of that iterative improvement will come through software. And so if we think about autonomy, I mentioned earlier, a critical feature or metric to be tracking is the, the number of minutes and eventually hours between human touch. Over the 100 acres that we did fully autonomously, we were able to see a, a nice decline in that, meaning longer and longer periods between human touch, uh, not where we need it to be. So there's a lot of improvement yet to do on that. But we think that that comes both through the next iterations on the platform, the hardware, as well as getting better and better at uh, sensing the terrain and understanding how to make turns in a crowded endro situation and such. So on the hardware, mechanical, electrical platform, there's lots to be done. So we talked through the transition to a diesel electric hybrid. I think that's really low-hanging fruit. Not that it's cheap, but those systems are well understood. It's not like we'd be trying to do a, a moon launch. There'd be nice gains in both getting us on the path to the electric-only platform as well as uh, improving our controls. It'd probably simplify the system to some degree, so that would all be good. And then there's all kinds of layers of the onion that if we, uh, I'll just mention one specific to a small diesel engine. If we think about the diesel hydraulic system, things like how do you cool the oil and do it in a way that you don't get a bunch of chaff in the cooler when you're doing cover crop seeding, when there tends to be all kinds of stuff floating in the air. Because at that point, you're running through leaves that are starting to dry. And so you get a little bit of that. You get some old pollen that's on the leaves that's floating around. So there's all kinds of problems like that. These problems have been encountered before uh, in agriculture, and we just need to work through solutions that are very robust. If we think about uh, cover, both cover crop seeding and nitrogen application, we want to improve, get so early season, we'd really like to get nitrogen into the ground. Uh, for cover crop seeding, we'd like to improve soil seed contact. So there's a bunch of work that could be done there on adapting technologies that we, that we know and love in human-operated systems and figuring out how they, how they can be adapted and not necessarily miniaturized, but adapted to work on this smaller platform, especially because... We're not going to have the advantage of an operator being able to look back and say, oh, I've got some residue that's on, uh, on the tool that I'm dragging, uh, so I'll stop and pick it up and back up a little bit and clear it out and, not, and then be all good. So we need to be really thoughtful about the design of the system to limit any problems like that, and then obviously be able to detect those problems if they should arise. So what's the business model here for this? Is this something where you would be selling these direct to a farmer and they would operate them? Or do you see this as a better fit for your company or another company owning these and providing it as a service? The right answer is all of the above. <laughs> but let me tell you, back in the early days, we started out thinking we were going to build robots and sell them to farmers. And early reaction from farmers was, love the idea. Don't want to babysit robots. Um, so then we transitioned to the, okay, this is going to be a service business. We're going to own and operate the machines. And that has a bunch of nice features for the grower, but also some risks. It's no surprise that farmers generally own their planters and their combines because they want to make sure that that work gets done when they know it needs to be done. And then, you know, maybe they call the co-op for spraying or something. They might be a little bit less time critical 
and so there, there's some tension there. So I think where we feel the future is, is a bit of a hybrid where over the next several seasons that we're, as we're scaling up, we're probably still owning and operating the machines. But as we're able to give the operation more robust, meaning that longer and longer periods of time between a human interaction... Uh, we'll get fully automated, refill the product at the side of the field. And then the roadmap is that the human support for these machines after they've been dropped off at a field becomes something that's basically done at a call center. That's the dream. Um, so that a technician at the call center would be presented with, on their screen with the last five seconds of video from a machine. Uh, a still image or two, the field map, the location of the machine on the field map, and the problem. Uh, and those would be triaged so that, uh, you know, really critical problems would be the ones that folks dealt with first. Uh, machine just as a little bit confused uh, out in the middle of a field. And we would always take the default position not to drive over vegetation, given that maybe it actually is the crop and not weeds. Um, we'll get better and better at figuring that out and not requiring a human, but certainly early in the process, we'll want that to go back to the human support team. And then they should be able to resolve things remotely and tell that machine, yep, looks like certainly weeds proceed on um, and or move ahead three yards and report back kind of thing. And when we're able to get to that position where it's really a human's required to drop the machine off, drop off the docking station and product and pick all that up at the end of the day, then we can move to what we believe is a leasing model where probably it's the, the local retailers are leasing fleets of machines. Maybe big farms are, maybe even smaller farms, not sure about that. But now the folks moving the machines field to field and refilling the product and all that are, are the teams leasing the equipment. And then we're providing the sort of the difficult data management and remote support so that it we don't want to get back into that situation that we originally tried to avoid, which is folks having to babysit machines who don't have any interest in babysitting the machine. So we can solve that by both getting the, the machine ops really robust and dealing with the infrequent uh, support problems remotely. And so that seems like the right long-term plan where we're eventually leasing, call it pods of machines to an entity, probably a retailer, maybe a custom applicator, and providing them uh, as part of their lease would be a really robust support package, data management, and, and such. So the million-dollar question, how long is it going to be? Do you anticipate before something like that would be available? Are we looking at five years or 10 years, or what, what are you thinking there? Yeah, it really is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, it? It depends on how rapidly we can capitalize the, the idea, which means we, we need millions to bring this fully to market. And you know, typically, startups like us have gone to the venture capital community. That may still be what happens. It's a pretty tricky thing for a hardware-software device working in row crops to excite the venture capital community. Uh, in addition, we, we've got some well-understood challenges in attracting venture capital. 
beyond the fact that we're working in row crop ag in that we've sort of wisely, because we're putting in all of our own money to start with, we partnered with our brother's robotics company in Pittsburgh. And so we've got sort of the crack team of 100 plus uh, roboticists able to help us. But that's also a model that's really uncomfortable to venture capitalists, um, even though we've done a really careful job with intellectual property and such. So we've raised a little bit of outside capital historically, but really to answer your question well, if it were, if I didn't have to worry about capital, I would say that we could be doing tens of thousands of acres in a couple of years with uh, migrating towards that model of most of the support is remote, bringing down the cost of the platform to getting to a point that three to four years out, we'd be having break even or better operations on fields with machines that are running mostly on their own with a little bit of remote support. And the only human on the field would be there at the end of the day, picking them up and moving to the next field. What's your vision for the future here? Do you think these unmanned type systems are going to be doing most of the work in row crop agriculture in the future? Or do you see this remaining as more of like a niche market that's only going to make sense in certain situations? That well, that's a different million dollar question, isn't it? And certainly, you know, some of the big players are uh, nibbling around the edge, edges of full autonomy or more. I don't mean to disparage their efforts, but I, I would say that if we look at Deer's efforts, they're they're certainly entering a a reasonably uh, safe zone of operating in fields doing tillage, where you have a pretty good view of what's out there. Um, should be able to manage risk reasonably well, even though it's a very large machine moving at a good speed. Uh, I should be able to just pick out humans quite well and avoid uh, any tragic issues, collisions and such. So I don't know where the large format machine goes towards full autonomy, doing more than a job or two on a field. The fully autonomous farm, the term folks love to throw out, I'm not convinced. What I am convinced of is that there are going to be jobs that are well-suited to robotics, and we should focus on those. Maybe tillage for a big machine is the right place because of the reasonably low safety risk for smaller machines. Uh, I, I think it's where we can solve a really critical problem. So maybe it's a labor issue. Uh, in our case, we believe that the application of nitrogen and seeding cover crop in a cornfield is re- really tough with conventional equipment. It can be done, uh, but it definitely increases a farmer's stress to do it well. Um, and so that means putting that nitrogen on really as late as you possibly can to, to maximize the efficiency and um, somehow get that cover crop seed down close to the soil surface. So you might have expected I'd be more bullish on the, the fully autonomous farm than, than I'm sounding. I think there's going to be a lot of neat things to be done. And you know, one story that I would paint that I find quite compelling, though haven't certainly haven't worked through the business case of it, is that if you were doing small machines from planting through harvest, you could undoubtedly increase the diversity of crops in a landscape and on a field, importantly. So instead of it field being a single crop, you you really could be doing three crops at the same time and maybe having that low productivity area that you you always wrestle with that's 
on that little knoll out in the middle of the field. Well, maybe that could just be a perennial crop um, that just does good for the world. It didn't really help you anyhow. And so that I think is a pretty interesting future to think about that does start to look like a fully autonomous farm, but it would be in a way that I think brings more value. And so I'd just, I'd just like to get back to the idea of we should be driven by challenges that we face when thinking about bringing robotics into to large-scale ag rather than saying, hey, I got this robotic system. Let's just go turn agriculture autonomous. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how all this unfolds over the next several years here. Anything else we should know about the robot system as we're wrapping up here? Well, we've certainly covered a bunch of things. So um, I feel that there is a bright future for this technology. We've certainly got a lot of interesting challenges. We want to be a partner to the farmer and help them improve their profitability and produce more per acre while also uh, improving their stewardship. That's really the driving uh, mission of our company. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a great way to wrap it up here, Kent. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today to tell us about the robot system and your vision for the future of uh, nitrogen management, cover crops, and other things. So you can go to robot.com if you'd like to learn more or see some videos of the unit in action. If you like what you heard on the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a rating. We'd like to know who's listening, so feel free to drop us a note at engineeryourfarm at gmail.com if you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes. Thanks for joining us today on the Engineering Your Farm podcast. Engineering Your Farm.